This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we discuss the new network architecture in ONTAP 9 with Juan Mojica. Subnets, IP spaces, broadcast domains. Oh my! Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi, Glenn Sizemore, and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tech podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. Sitting in the studio today with me, Glenn Sizemore. You were in the office. Say it ain't so. <laughs> it, it, it absolutely is so. And I also noticed that you have, you don't have a monster energy drink. You have a protein shake. At uh, lunch? Yeah, yeah. This is what happens when we schedule the podcast in the afternoon. You get to see me with lunch instead of breakfast. So a 2.30 lunch of a protein shake. Uh, it sounds it sounds about... Yeah, mm, Probably not not the best, but yeah. Yeah, that's fine. Andrew will not be joining us today. He's got like insight stuff he's working on. But uh, today in the studio, we brought in Juan Mojica, product manager. Uh, Juan, tell us a little bit about exactly what products you manage and what we're going to be talking about today. Well, I manage software, and thank you for having me, Justin, uh, on the Tech on Tap podcast. You're welcome. No problem. Uh, <laughs> I manage, uh, in particular, a couple things, but today we're going to be talking about scale-out networking in ONTAP, and we're going to be covering some of that material. Scale-out networking. So um, if you are not familiar with ONTAP, and you better be, <laughs> but if you're not, the cluster data ONTAP networking stack is designed to scale out across multiple nodes in a cluster. Uh, in 8.3, there were some pretty major changes, and these are changes that actually people are still having problems wrapping their head around. So we're going to talk about those, uh, talk a bit about those and discuss what they are and, and actually how they all work. And, and I think it's a perfect opportunity to, to get that done, and Juan is going to be doing that for us today. Sweet. So, Juan, uh, let's start it off with, with the 8.3 network stack. So we made some pretty major changes in that release. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was and take us on into eight on tap 9 and how we look today? Sure. We'll start off with 8.3 with the most major change, and that happens to be IP spaces. And so IP spaces is this very cool technology that lets you logically segregate a set of ports to only basically allow access to a given SVM through those set of ports. People really usually think that this is a service provider level feature. Hey, I don't have multiple tenants. And one of the cool things that I have with IP spaces is the ability to reuse the same IP address across multiple IP spaces. Yeah. And everybody thinks, you know, that's neat, but that's a service provider. I'm not really have these separate networks. Well, ONTAP has this concept, and there's this general general networking concept of weak-end host model. And so when you're talking a weak-end host model, basically you can receive a packet on any port that you have on a given system, and if that IP address is configured on your system, it will respond to that packet. In theory, you have routing and everything to make the response go back. But given the way I've seen a lot of configurations go, a lot of people have default routes. Yeah. And basically saying, hey, you know, blast route resort. I don't know how to get to it, but go through this gateway. So if you keep, for example, all your data SVM in a single, all your data SVMs in a single IP space, you could potentially be exposing your services, one service to another, just because they all share this logical pool of ports. You can receive a packet for one and a port that you're not expecting it, and you have a default route responding back to that packet, and then somebody's 
some mail client is able to get, for example, to your SAP services that you're also hosting on your cluster. Yeah. And so this is where IP spaces comes in. And this is why I think, in general, any enterprise should be using this, is that you're able to logically segregate these groups into different IP spaces. And so in this case, you'll get an IP packet from a service, say, in your mail service that's destined to your SAP service. Because the way IP spaces work, they'll only ever have access to that mail service. And then it'll never reach the SAP service. So you logically and securely separated your network uh, applications out even from each other. Interesting. So, so when the team actually sat down and kind of planned this out, it wasn't just getting around the whole CIDR collision problems that we were actually running into in the field, but, but you actually took a step further and go, well, actually, there's something here. You know, we could use this as a more, uh, just a more uh, broadly implemented security system that, that, that is available to our customers. Exactly. We really just extended our secure multi-tenancy story. So we already had logical containers for our storage. Why not have logical containers for the network portions as well? You mean I don't have to talk to the network guys to get a network security stack? You still need to talk to them. I don't want to talk to those guys. Those guys are mean to me. You still need to talk to them. Oh, man. They're so mean. But, but, but what this does mean um, is, is that there's that, that next level of, of tools available in your tool, in, in your tool belt. It's, it, it, it's analogous to the, the, the mount system. You know, it's something that, that we ran into with, with the A2 release. And, and, and we've had a similar struggle there, too. You know, when, when we added uh, SMB and, and data on top and, and, and uh, expanded the protocol out, uh, one of the things that changed with cluster data on tap is that the export policy mechanism would actually apply to both product protocols, right? Mm. Except Windows administrators don't understand what an export policy is because that's not a concept that exists in Windows. So on tap was providing this additional layer of capability where we could go in and whitelist by address, right? Who's allowed to connect to a share, not just using Kerberos authentication, but also using the physical controls themselves. And, and, that additional layer is super powerful for organizations that take advantage of it, but 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 since it is non-standard, it's had the same challenge of of kind of getting out there in front of users, and and and, and it's a big education hill. You got to push it up, you know, to get everybody to understand what this setting is. You don't have to set it; it's an optional configuration. But you know, here's what it does, and here's the scenarios where it becomes useful for you. Exactly, and just to build on that, a particular scenario that I think IP spaces is greatly useful for, and we introduced this functionality in 8.3.1 in particular, is cluster peering. So for cluster peering, in theory, you have a DR site somewhere receiving backups of your, you know, your, your production environment. That WAN, in general, you don't know what's actually sitting on that other end. You don't have any... It's managed by somebody else, possibly, right? Yeah. And you really should be separating your peering, which you're able to do in 8.3.1, from your data access by using a IP space for just the peering. So you can assign the peering portion of uh, your cluster to be in its own separate IP space. And that way you prevent any of this WAN access to potentially hitting services that it should definitely not have any access to because it's really just a remote site. But you have to maintain that availability, obviously, to you know, yeah. for, for the DR stuff. Makes sense? Yeah. No, it makes total sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd, I'd always present it as, oh, service providers because you get more IP addresses because you can just reuse stuff. But... That absolutely does make sense from a security perspective. So I like that you use NFS there. <laughs> you would like that part. <laughs> my, my, my heart grew with pride there. Yeah. 
Anyway, uh, so let's talk a little bit about bro- broadcast domains because those two things are kind of easily confused with each other, um, and they they aren't really well understood. So broadcast domains, what do those do? So really, ONTAP also has the ability to map out your L2 network. So it figures out which ports within the cluster can talk to each other, right? And this is through normal L2 mechanisms and just figuring out the reachability of each other's ports. And your network can have multiple broadcast domains and kind of NetApp figure the cluster uh, figures that out for you. Really, it's about having the same access, the same network access across the different ports in case of particularly lift failover. So this comes in uh, great for lift failover. So broadcast domain maps out that uh, reachability, and then you can subdivide a broadcast domain by using failover groups and assigning failover policies to those failover groups. One of the things that I see most incorrect in network configurations is that a broadcast domain, an L2 network, really has one uh, a fundamental requirement of having the same MTU across all your links in the L2 network. So regardless of whether your mm-hmm. port is a 10-gig port or 1-gig port, if it has this exact same reachability as any other port, it should have that same MTU. That's a f- fundamental RFC. I believe it's RFC... 1042 that defines what the network needs. I'm just pulling that. That's number. an old one. Yeah, it's it's one of the most primitive ones out there. And basically, the reason it tells you to have the same MTU across your L2 network is because you can create what we call a network black hole, where network traffic can just get lost because yeah. the particular link doesn't support an MTU that you're actually sending, right? A real-world use case of this particular MTU mismatch, we see this sometimes with uh, trying to join an AD domain. Like if you try to send an authentication request from the cluster to your AD domain as you're creating your SIF server, that MTU mismatch can cause those packets to get lost in the process and cause failures in between that particular cluster and that AD domain. So that's one of the things you can possibly see with an MTU mismatch. Yeah, and the failure domains as well as performance. So you're going to get a really hard-to-diagnose performance issue in your network. You're going to just see – your TCP is going to time out because you don't get a notification that yep. that frame was dropped anywhere in your network, right? So TCP is going to time out and back off and start going, all right, I'm going to piecemeal this information back out to you. You've already lost all that time waiting for that timeout to happen. It really becomes a network nightmare. Uh, at that point. I don't know. I'd f- it's fine to me. I get to dig through a gigabyte of packet trace to figure that out. That's fun. Yeah, no, 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 no. This is reason number 4,779 why you should not be running jumbo frames. Like, that was a technology that was developed before 10, 40, 100 gig Ethernet. Like, it's just silly now. That's Glenn's opinion. Let me be clear about that. Yeah, I mean, but that that is the way it's going, right? The best practices are changing, right? Yeah. We, we're starting to see more and more recommendations to go away from Jumbo frames, not because of the mismatches necessarily, just because it's another configuration headache. Well, that that's just it, though. You know, wh- yeah. why are you setting the setting? You know, what wh- what is this setting providing for you? And and in the case of of that particular one, when you when you start mucking with the MTU on an Ethernet network, it's to get more traffic through, right? Which which then my question to the customer always becomes. Are you saturated now? Are you running at 100% utilization? But their answer is usually, it, it, it was bigger. <laughs> bigger means more, right? 7% nobody needs. Yeah, it's so not I mean, worth the headache. Yeah, so I mean, it, and, and if you already have it configured, it doesn't mean go back and change it. Oh, though. don't touch it. No, oh, just, God, no. Yeah, if it, ain't, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. 
So with a larger MTU, you do reduce the packet overhead compared yes. to your, your, right, and you do reduce the per packet processing right. cost. And so, but is it is it worth the headache of having potential misconfigurations? Where, where do we get to a point where the the performance gains and CPU gains no longer matter with the larger networks? Right. You really re- need to understand your network. And if you're yeah. able to have confidence in that MTU and at any point in time where you do have an MTU mismatch, you have the right equipment in place to actually fragment, which that's what the layer three is supposed to do. Yep. Then then go for it. I, I'm personally still a fan of Jumbo frames. Well, you're over here quoting RFC 1042. Of course you love Jumbo frames. <laughs> I, I have to write 600-page documents to teach people how to build systems with our solutions. And and the, Jumbo frames is one of those settings where, where from, from my perspective, it's just not worth the blood that we pay in, in implementing it in the real world. Like, yeah, there's a real there's a real benefit to it. It's not fake. But but what m- from what I've personally seen, like where, 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 that, where the rubber meets the road, right, customers don't need it. Like yeah, it runs faster, but but look at the actual like end user app performance before and after. Is it faster? No, the app's performing the same exact speed to your end users. Just the infrastructure is technically seven percent more efficient, but it's not actually meaningful. And it does have these pitfalls where where somebody can make a simple mistake, and all of a sudden you need Justin to crack open a one gig trace to figure out Bring why it. it's not working. <laughs> Bring it. Actually, I'm, I bring that example up because I was actually given a one gigabyte trace. I know, I saw, I saw that on Twitter. <laughs> Only one. I've been given a ten gigabyte. Uh, well, trace. yeah. Oh I mean, my god. Yeah. This, but this was for like an NFS mount issue. I'm like, man, that's a lot of trace. We, Can we, you just give me the smaller one? Thanks. We 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 rat hold a little bit, um, probably because we touched the third rail of of virtualization networking, which is MTU size. Um, let's let's get past that. All right. All right. Uh, that, that that very much is a philosophical like operation versus technical debate, and 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 truthfully, the answer is what. It's best on, on an individual by individual basis. No two orgs are the same. And if you've got the expertise, as I said, it's a real setting. It, there's real performance benefits to get had. Now let's get back to what we were actually talking about, which is broadcast domain. Which seg- segues perfectly, I think. It's really meant to discover these mismatches. And, yeah. these rich- and basically, you'll get different broadcast domains for different ports, and you'll be notified, especially in ONTAP 9, with our network port health monitor. Effectively, we've introduced this network port health monitor to figure out if we have these reachability issues. And so there will be an EMS message generated, that part of the system saying, hey, all these ports are in the same broadcast domain, but one of them has great access, or three of them have great access, and this one is all by itself, and it's lonesome, and I don't think you want to really use that port, right? But we're taking an approach where we'll notify you to fix that error, that, that issue, and then you can use failover groups depending on how you want to isolate or move it into broadcast domain, but just give you awareness that that problem exists in your network. I, I, I particularly like it um, because it makes the cluster administration aspect of it a lot easier. You know, beforehand, there, there was an artisan aspect to failover groups. You know, you'd go through and, like, you'd plan which ports were going to go where, and you'd create your failover groups and all your different policies, and, you know, you'd be able to go do, do your tests, and all your ports would move and move back, and it was all great. It was great tech, but, but it was very high-touch, right? Um, and then broadcast domains came in, and I loaded my first 8.3 system, and and I had this institutional like knowledge of two years of doing failover group stuff. So the first time I loaded it, I got in there and tried to do all of that, and the CLI started yelling at me, telling me that those commands didn't exist anymore, and I was doing it wrong. And at first, I was very unhappy. 
but then I realized that 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 what what the team had done, which what you guys have done, is you've effectively removed what was, you know, two thirds of the network planning process from an on tap deployment perspective. Because because the truth of the matter is now with fail, with broadcast domains, I don't have to configure failover groups. Whereas previously, I actually needed to. I needed to go in there and manually control like what ports could fail where if I wanted to let them fail. Now you can just let the system figure out what ports can talk where and use system-wide fa- failover policies, and everything works great. We got anything else on uh, broadcast domains we want to talk about? No. I think you guys hit the nail on the head, really. It's the consumption uh, of it might seem a little terse to begin with. Yeah. Um, but after you see why we've done it, it, it really starts going. Well, and you still have, as you said, right? We still have failover groups. You can still go in yeah, there and, and get still, artisan with it if you if you choose. Right, and the biggest thing that we see with failover groups, and actually, uh, this is actually a point that I should bring up, is that people try to use broadcast domains in taking it to the extreme of that example and basically saying, I want to create a broadcast domain of 10 gig ports only. And really, that's mm. where failover groups come into place. Gotcha. Really, you isolate 10 gig ports from 1 gig ports, by using failover groups if they're on the same L2 network. Again, speed doesn't matter. MTU matters and reachability matters, but link speed, 10 gig versus 1 gig, does not matter as far as an L2 network is concerned. All right, so subnets. Tell us about that. Now, that's, that's, actually, I think subnets is probably the most, the most confused feature as well as the least known about feature, so subnets. So subnets is something that we, a term that we've overloaded. Uh, and that's a term that exists in networking as well as a term that's specific to ONTAP. And so I understand where the confusion came in, uh, the engineering team. It's also, also. an AD. Oh. <laughs> so it's super, super saturated and overloaded. Um, we have created an ONTAP, basically a range of IP addresses, that the intent is for Justin, who does not like his network administrator. I hate that guy. Jerk. He can pre-provision a set of IP addresses, really, and just never go back to that network admin and just pull from this pool of IP addresses, really, and just just take them, create, provision new services using that set of lists from that range of addresses. You have the traditional subnet, this traditional networking subnet, which is really, it's also a range of addresses. I, uh, the ONTAP subnet does not have to be a contiguous set of addresses. The uh, networking subnet is... But really, the purpose there for the traditional meaning of the word subnet, you're talking about a range of addresses that can all communicate each other without going through a router. And so the benefit there is that you get to mask your network internals from the outside internet, right, the whole world of routers. And you also decrease your router table size, your routing table yeah. Really, the size, the number of entries that go. Because now I don't need an entry saying, hey, how do I get to, to Billy Bob? Oh, no, Billy Bob's right next to me. That's, that's all I need. So the the, the thing that, that I clued in on with subnets initially, um, and, and and I guess I'll just ask because you were there, and you can you can give us the backstory. We got you on the show. Um, a really cool feature that enables me to no longer have to do that one-for-one static management. I love the, the, the idea of being able to hand a pool of, of IP addresses to ONTAP. And then, you know, as we're provisioning like iSCSI interfaces, instead of having to go and, you know, hit a system or talk to a person, um, being able to just tell the system, hey, look, I need another iSCSI address. And it, and it deals with those internal pools. Really cool. Why didn't we just implement DHCP or just enable DHCP to, to, to pull addresses on those interfaces? 
So the DHCP, you do have a life, a finite lifetime with the number of, uh, basically with that address that you're given. And you're not guaranteed that you're potentially going to be able to actually renew. So you do have these kind of race conditions that can happen where for a given point in time, you go up to renew and then you're denied yeah. that address. Then what happens to your all your services? So that's that's the most primitive kind of problem that comes in with DHCP. The next level for, for networking is also, uh, for storage networking, is that you want to be very clear about the address that you're using. And so you want to be able to communicate that out. So if you'd have to effectively, you could wait and say, hey, all right, I got this address from DHCP, then I start serving. And some of the DNS stuff actually will... Yeah, dynamic DNS could pick that up, probably. Would pick that up. Yeah, yeah not, not, let, let me be clear. Like, d- dynamic or DHCP on, like, SAN interfaces is silly. Okay. That's not what we're talking about. No, no. Yeah. I, yeah I but I, ha- I have had customers ask me, you know, like, you've got dyna- dynamic DNS. Why do I have to put a static IP on this SIF share? True. And then, okay, so the next level is, what happens if you have a rogue DHCP server in your network? Oh, uh, Okay. Then how do you know which guy got it from the right guy? What address is actually valid? And are you then exposing, could this rogue DHCP server then be exposing your services out to other people? There, as far as DHCP uh, for IPv4 in particular, uh, I don't think there's m- many security mechanisms and very few. And I, I'm trying to remember uh, if V6 improves on it, and it might just a little bit, uh, but there's still a security concern of just handing out addresses of from uh, basically what you think is a trusted party, but you don't actually know. That that is a great answer, um, and 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 it makes sense to me. I just wanted to ask on the show because I know that it's a question that comes up from time to time. Uh, internally, I've always thought that 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 was basically why we did it. You know, we took a look and said, "This is a storage target. You've got hundreds of things connecting to it. Is this really where you want?" dynamic things to occur? Um, Isn't this like the one place where you actually want static configuration? Uh, It makes sense to me. Uh, And and the subnet concept allows us to have that same uh, management philosophy of just requesting a thing and letting an address show up. Um, so, So we've enabled the same consumption of the storage resources Albeit using a different system, but 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 enabling us to to keep that those static configurations that are valuable to storage. Agreed. And one of the things actually I first did as a product manager here in NetApp was actually reach out to our own IT organization because honestly I thought the same thing. We're, we're trending in general towards uh, simplicity in all our processes, right? Yeah. And how easy is it just plug it in and plug it in your system and you get an IP address? It's it's as easy as that. Exact same thought. I think a large majority of our customers are having. I talked at length with one of our NetApp's storage engineers, in particular, he managed the storage, one of the, these network guys that Justin doesn't like. These guys suck. <laughs> <laughs> and basically, I walked him through what I was thinking. I, I walked him through uh, my plan, and he started pointing out the holes that I had thought about and didn't think were that big, but he really thought, hey, this could actually bring uh, your storage network to, to its knees. And I was like, great point. And I definitely see your value. So we have all this expertise. I mean, you yeah. guys are fantastic, obviously. Most of us. I, don't know, I just asked. Mostly Andrew. I just asked. Yeah. Yeah. Andrew's not here, so you don't actually get to talk to the no. smart half of the show. <laughs> no. We've got snark and dumb questions. That's all that's it. Yes. It, yeah. Fair enough, but. Um. <laughs> snark, snark, snark. Oh, that's snarf. Never mind. Thundercats or whatever. 
but one of the things that's great about NetApp is that we have all this expertise here, right? And that we're able to leverage it efficiently, yeah. right? Like we eat our own dog food. It's delicious. Drink our own champagne. Hello. Oh, that, that, that one's better. That one's better. I should have said that. I don't, I, I hate all those terms. Yeah, I do too. Oh, that's great though. Uh, the, the yeah, no, yeah, we're 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 over here making fun. We're trying to make an, an extremely valid point, um, which is that that yeah, and that's something that, that that we see on the FlexPod team as well. You know, I can absolutely uh, back you up there. You know, when, when we'll have crazy ideas about well, what what if we did this, and we'll just take that crazy idea internally and just go present it in, to our peers, who will just start shooting it full of holes and tell us about all the things that we never thought about. Uh, and all the reasons that that would be silly, and or all the the other use cases for that 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 we hadn't been considering, the other markets that could use that type of capability. Um, so, so the greater brain trust absolutely does does come into play with stuff like that. I would say, just in passing, giving the answer, um, I think there's room for us to treat management interfaces differently, and that's something we're actively considering. Yeah. Um, not to say too much. I, yeah, no, I get it, and we're not we're not trying to we're not having that conversation. That's not what this show is. I was just making a comment. <laughs> understood, understood. All right, so these changes are all pretty big when you come from eight two and you go to eight three, and I know that a lot of people are already thinking about nine and nine one and such, but there are still people out there on eight dot two, and I would really like you to walk us through what people have to think about when they want to upgrade from eight dot two to eight dot three, because to get to ONTAP nine to begin with, you have you to go it. to eight three. Yep. So walk us through some of the caveats you have to think about when you're upgrading from 8.2 to 8.3. Uh, in particular, we also had a, a routing change recently happen. Uh, fundamentally, you could use your node management lift to contact external services. Right. And one of the things that you need now for your SVM, each SVM needs to be able to actually be able to contact that external service where DNS, Active Directory, LDAP, NIS, all those services that you'd depend on for NAS traffic. Exactly. You need to have a lift that within the SVM that's actually be able to reach those services. I think that's probably the one that really trips most people up. There's actually a warning now when you upgrade. Uh, it gets, there's a script that runs and says, hey, by the way, you're using a cluster-wide DNS configuration. You might want to fix that before you upgrade because if you don't, you're going to see an outage. Yeah, and, and, and I'll just be the first one to come right out here and say on this particular episode, uh, I get that that's a change and changes are hard because you got to deal with them. This was one that needed to happen. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. We all did a wild celebration when 8.3 shipped, and we could target individual DNS and AD domains on a per SVM basis, and we no longer had to deal with like making the cluster network route to those different services. Uh, the, the, the way that it works in 8.3 is so much better. Well, not only that, I mean, they, the fact that it was a kludge to begin with can be recognized by the fact they used to call the connection piece that goes out to your external services a shim. I did not know that. <laughs> it was a shim, right? So you could actually use different management interfaces and that sort of thing. Now you can do that internal to your SVM, giving you a true multi-tenancy story that we didn't necessarily have as a complete story with 8.2 and prior. I don't, I don't I think you're being a little unfair there. We had we had a real multi-tenant story. I think I Well, think, no, not from a network perspective because yeah. we were still dependent on things that were external to the SVMs and now we are able to compartmentalize that a lot better with our SVMs. Ah, that's fair. That's fair. Not saying that it wasn't good before, but it's much better now. Uh, yeah, w what I was going to say is that the, the, the market changed the definition of what multi-tenancy means on us midstream there. We have since corrected the product to match Don't the Don't go blaming definition. the market. I, hey, listen, I'm just saying. 
All right, so um, we we that was one of the up main the main uh, upgrade caveats. Were there any others you could think of? I mean, I know that we have a whole network stack change. So, what other things do we have to consider? I'm trying to think of nothing's popping off the top of my head. Really, we have a great uh, upgrade checker that actually will run you through the list of all the problems. The one thing that I have seen as part of the upgrade checker is that the upgrade checker will tell you what the problem is, but you must read the message that it outputs. Yes, sir, you must. (laughs) Why won't it fix it for me? (laughs) Because it'll give you the instructions and basically the information that you need to take the next steps. Yes. Uh, The one thing that I've seen is people just rerun the upgrade checker again, hoping that magically it'll succeed this time. Well, we also have the uh, the config advisor, right? The the cluster network checker, and uh, it checks all of our network connections, and it's a nice GUI interface. So that's something to consider when you're upgrading as well. Make sure you do your initial checks up front. Understand your network. Understand your environment before you start upgrading because you will run into problems if you don't. Exactly. And we'll try to detect as much as possible and notify you as much as possible. Uh, you know, we want to make sure that the upgrade is successful, that you're happy with the new software, that you're actually able to use it. We don't want you to get stuck mid, mid-upgrade. mid um, And so, yeah, there's plenty of, like you said, there's tools out there to help you. One thing I didn't hear you necessarily cover with the IP spaces is this concept of B-serverized routing tables. So before we had a cluster-wide, or actually node-wide routing table, right? It was the per-node routing table, and we had this, the routes that were just, the table itself was, you know, you, you didn't have it cluster-wide, right? Um, or vServer-wide. Now with 8.3, we allow you to do the more classic route commands. Uh, no more of this routing group stuff that you had to do before, right? Right. Each vServer has its own routing table. So you can assign that vServer a particular set of routes, that you want and that's managed within. Really, it's your logical container. It's really a virtual machine, and we're exposing the functionality that you need to be able to treat it as such. And I would like you to talk us through the metrics piece of that because this is something I see trip up people a lot is this metric value. And people usually leave it as the default, and if you have all of your routes in the same metric, then you potentially run into problems. So could you walk us through why that is? Sure. The route metric, I agree, is something that is a little misunderstood. First of all, lower the metric, the better. So, And by better, I mean it, that route is going to be preferred. Yeah. Fundamentally, as a, it depends how that metric is used within any operating system. And so even if you specify this route has a lower metric, certain operating systems will actually round robin and use that metric as a weight. So I wouldn't take it across your systems in general that that lower metric is going to always – that route with that lower metric is always actually going to be used. Um, and so that's one key, uh, one key point is – so you have routes, the more specific – the better, right? Uh, and if they're no, if they're not the same, if not the exact same route, it doesn't really matter what metric you give them. The more specific is always going to be taken. Really, the metric comes in when you have these set of routes that are all ex- the same. And typically, what happens if uh, what I've seen is that you have multiple default routes, and multiple uh, these multiple default routes have the exact same metric. At that point, you're not really guaranteed which route will get used at any given point in time if you need to go out, uh, if you need to hit any of those services. And that's really the problem is that people provision default routes like they were popping Pez, right? Like it's nice and easy, (laughs) just like here you go, oh, delicious. Uh, The problem is that 
these networks on the uh, the rest of the network might not be provisioned in that yeah. way, and so your your routing might not be set up correctly. So most of the time it works, right? It just goes out, picks up one, the first one or whatever, and then you're good to go. System reboots for whatever reason, then the other route gets loaded first, and now that's the one, and now you have an outage, right? That And that point in time, you realize that maybe I shouldn't have been using a default route in that instance. Yeah, extra configuration is something that, that traditionally is looked at as something that causes doesn't cause harm, right? Well, it's just an extra setting. No big deal. But man, additional extra configuration is actually very harmful um, in, in a lot of situations, especially situations like that. You know, I love the way you put that. People issue default routes the way that they're, that they're handing out PEZs. And you're right, they do. And they're just like, ah, put another one in there. See if it works now. Uh, but the problem with that is, as, as you brought up, you know, yeah, it might it might light up, and all of a sudden the traffic starts to flow. But is it going to keep flowing? Is it going to flow six months from now? What happens after a power outage or a reboot? Right, and all that stuff definitely does come into it. So we've talked a lot about eight point three, and that's you know that's good because it, it helps us understand it a little better. So ONTAP nine is already available. We have things added like increased lift limits, so we've doubled the lift limits on per node and HA pairs. Um, we've also got LLDP and DSCP. Uh, support for ONTAP 9, so you're able to do link layer, link layer discovery protocol as well as your QoS for protocols with, with your network side. Um, one thing that people don't know a lot about in ONTAP 9 is the auto-heal. So auto-heal <laughs> is actually a way for the processes that control the network within cluster data ONTAP to do exactly what it sounds like. It automatically heals any sort of inconsistencies within the tables so we don't get in, in a discrepancy between your uh, what's called this, the, the CDB, which is your cluster database. That's what it's called. It's cluster database, right? Mm -hmm. And your RDB, which is your replicated database. CDB is a node local thing. It's loaded when you boot up, and it does all the network configuration when you boot up. RDB is the stuff you see in your cluster view when you do your netint show and that sort of thing. Those things can get out of sync sometimes. Uh, AutoHeal helps make sure those are always in sync. And there's also things that AutoHeal does in the background to help keep the network healthy in general. Now, there are instances where AutoHeal won't kick in and, or won't be able to fix whatever the problem is. But in most cases, AutoHeal is going to prevent you from having to open up that support case and have, you know, have to go through a lengthy process of getting something fixed. So in ONTAP 9, we do have, for network in particular, this uh, feature called node port affinity. But it's not something that you're going to read about or see in our technical documentation. It's this feature that fundamentally we realize that when a cluster boots up, when a node boots up in the cluster, it's trying to make connections immediately with its peer over the cluster network as fast as possible. In particular, if it's mm. going over a switch, it doesn't know potentially the best route. So we're going to make a connection immediately, and that connection might actually be going through the ISL, and which isn't necessarily the most optimal connection at the point in time. And then potentially you introduce, if, if a failure happens, you introduce a basically a break in your service. And so what we do with node port affinity and some of the new features uh, in ONTAP 9 is basically, all right, we establish a connection. Then we go, is this now, we've given some time, we understand how the cluster network's mapped uh, and how we're cabled and how our partner's cabled. What's the quickest, what's the most direct route we can get to our partner? Mm. And so we'll rebalance basically and reconfigure the connections to flow through the optimal path. Is that is that a one-time activity that happens as part of st startup, or is it a reoccurring task that just kind of periodically runs? It'll happen. You'll see it happen mostly during startup. It's something that we look for, but really, your cluster network should be up yeah. and available. Most should of the time. not change. <laughs> Completely agree. So yeah. yeah, sweet. 
CDB is actually configuration database, not cluster. <laughs> I just wanted to correct myself there. That's what you get for throwing out acronyms that no one outside of ONTAP would actually know. <laughs> you can only be called out by your peers. I know. I know. I should have just left it. All right, Juan, thanks so much for joining us today. If people wanted to get in touch with you about anything, uh, how could they reach you either on social media or email? On social media, I have a Twitter account. It's Juan, J-U-A-N underscore M underscore Mojica, which is M-O-J-I-C-A. Wait a minute. Was there another Juan underscore Mojica out there? Uh, Yes. There's plenty of other Juan Mojicas out there. Uh, I didn't know that there was a Juan underscore Mojica. I didn't realize you had to put your middle initial in there to differentiate yourself as much. A lot of Twitter handles are already gone. This was the most clear and professional one I could find. Oh, okay. I don't do professional, so I don't understand. (laughs) What is professional you talk about? All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast.netup.com or send us a tweet at NetUp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher or via techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team and Juan Mojica, thanks for listening. Did you like that? I did. I did. I especially like the Juan. Yeah. It, it, it had a huge property to it. Huge. Huge. Did you have a taco bowl for lunch? I did. <laughs> oh, no. You had the protein shake. I did. I yeah, did. I did. I did. Uh, did not have the most offensive taco bowl in the history of I am looking forward to taco trucks on every corner. Oh, yeah. Looking forward to that. That's going to be can, delicious. Can, can this train wreck just hit the station already? Yes. It's election cycle, I tell you. Uh,